Tonight's talk is about the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha said, I teach one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. I think sometimes Buddha has, uh, the Buddhism has gotten a bad rap because people latch onto the first part that Buddhism is always talking about suffering without hearing the second part that it also talks about the end of suffering. So tonight we're going to talk both about suffering and the end of suffering. We're going to look at one of the frameworks that the Buddha offered for understanding suffering. This framework is called the Four Noble Truths. This was the first discourse that after he became enlightened, he went back to visit the five ascetics he'd practiced with before, and he gave them these teachings. These teachings that outline his teachings on suffering and the end of suffering. The Four Noble Truths are, there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, there is an end to suffering, and there is a path that leads to the end of suffering. So the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. The Buddha stated clearly and often that there is suffering in this worldly existence. Now, most of you won't be very surprised to hear this, and you'll probably agree that it's quite obvious. Most humans, however, try to live in constant denial of this basic truth. But the Buddha taught that suffering is a basic truth of life that we cannot avoid. Actually, the translation of the Pali word dukkha into suffering doesn't really do justice to the full meaning of the original. Suffering conventionally thought of means pains in the body and torments in the mind. We've all had plenty of tastes of that level of suffering. We all suffer bodily aches and pains, and we all suffer from our minds. It's part of being human, and even if we try to avoid it, it finds us. We all grow old, get sick, and die. We all have days when we experience anxiety or depression or feelings of dissatisfaction. There is no avoiding that life does include a certain amount of physical and mental pain. And this is how we generally understand the word suffering. While the Buddha acknowledged that pains and discomforts are part of the unpleasantness of taking human birth, he actually had another focus when he was talking about dukkha. More central to what the Buddha was talking about when he mentioned dukkha is the inability of the things of this world to bring us the happiness and peace that we're looking for. Sometimes dukkha is translated as unsatisfactoriness because we humans are constantly coming up against the fact that the things of this world don't satisfy the happiness that we want, that we crave. We look for happiness through satisfying our desires for mundane things, our desires for sense pleasures. And what do we end up with? Nothing. Because everything changes. Nothing in this world is permanent. Everything is transitory. And what gives us a bit of happiness today in the blink of an eye may be gone. So how can anything in this world bring lasting happiness if it doesn't last? But we continue to look in the hope that something in this world will bring us the lasting happiness that we so deeply long for. We try to manipulate this world to provide us with security with happiness. Through grasping and aversion, which are our main uh, manipulation tactics, <laughs> we hope that we can make ourselves happy. So this translation, unsatisfactoriness, points to the basic suffering that our strategy of grasping and aversion doesn't work, and that we can't find lasting happiness and satisfying happiness in things of this world. You can see from what I'm saying about this translation of the word dukkha, 
that understanding change is central to the Buddha's teachings about suffering. In one of his sermons, the Buddha explained change in this way. All things conditioned are unstable, impermanent, fragile in essence as an unbaked pot, like something borrowed or a city founded on sand. They last a short while only. They are inevitably destroyed, like plaster washed off in the rains, like the sandy bank of a river. They are conditioned and their true nature is frail. They are like the flame of a lamp, which rises suddenly and as soon goes out. They have no power of endurance, like the wind, or like foam, unsubstantial, essentially feeble. Most of us, until we make a thorough investigation of the matter of change, we have no idea of the depth and breadth of this truth of impermanence of change. Once we investigate, and that's what we're doing here, we see that everything, and that means everything, is in a constant state of flux. We only need to watch our minds to see that. They're this tumble of thoughts and images and ideas just flows on and on. We notice that one thing after another comes into our field of attention, and we see that it's all a flow of constant change. And on the physical level, my body is disintegrating even as I sit here speaking. People are born, grow up, and die. Galaxies are born and die. Molecules are in a constant state of agitation. Rocks crumble. The Buddha himself described change poetically by saying, Thus shall you think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. Everything is here and gone, just like that, arises and passes away, like a bubble in a stream or a flash of lightning. Even conventional wisdom occasionally uh, catches on to this truth of change. I came across an article, I believe it was, I have to say it might have been in a National Enquirer. One of my vices is in grocery lines. (laughs) I read the magazines. I won't buy them because that's where I, like, draw the line. (laughs) But um, I found this uh, article. (laughs) Beat stress by accepting the six things that can never change. And it's um, by Dr. Harold Greenwald, who um, authored a book called The Happy Person. Actually, there's some wisdom here. It's kind of surprising. (laughs) He says, one, um, getting older is inevitable. Many people act as though getting older were a curse. But wrinkles, varicose veins, paunchy stomachs, and graying hair are a fact of life. Getting older is not only inevitable, but considering the alternative, it's a process that can be enjoyed. I'm not sure what he meant by the alternative. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, this is good, helping people accept, you know, that we get older. Um, There's a couple other ones, but I like the last one. Uh, Number six, things are bound to change. Trying to hold on to the status quo is particularly stressful these days when the world is changing more rapidly than ever. Nothing is forever, except the reality that things are bound to change. Even people who don't come here to meditate get a little bit of dharma. We suffer when we live as though this truth of change were not true. When we live as though we think we can control this flow of change. 
Ajahn Chah, a Thai forest master, explains this beautifully with the analogy of a river. He says, it's like the water of a river. It naturally flows down the gradient. It never flows against it. That's its nature. If a person was to go and stand on a riverbank and seeing the water flowing swiftly down its course, foolishly want it to flow back up the gradient, he would suffer. Whatever he was doing, his wrong thinking would allow him no peace of mind. He would be unhappy because of his wrong view thinking against the stream. If he had right view, he would see that the water must inevitably flow down the gradient, and until he realized and accepted that fact, the man would be agitated and upset. So sometimes we sit in the middle of the river in our canoes or our kayaks trying to paddle upstream against the flow of life. And we get tired. That's how we tire ourselves, by resisting life, resisting this flow of the current and trying to paddle upstream. What we see when we deeply understand this truth of change is we see that this is an insecure world that we can't control and that we can't count on things to stay the same. They're always flowing and always changing. And we're vulnerable because of this. So included in this word dukkha is this understanding of insecurity and vulnerability that we live with, that this is another level of suffering in human life. I was talking with Michelle the other night about giving this talk, and we were thinking that we don't want to depress the yogis too much with too much talking about suffering. And I turned to Michelle and I said, I love to talk about suffering. <laughs> and um, it's not because I'm masochistic or, or sadistic. It's, um, it's just that I know that going into and understanding suffering is our path to freedom. So I love to be able to explore all the intricacies of this path to freedom. Many people find it a tremendous relief to hear about suffering after all of the denial that we live in. I remember the first time I read about Buddhism. I, um, this was also when I was living in Nicaragua, which I mentioned before. And I was reading along in this book, actually it was A Gradual Awakening by Stephen Levine. And I was so happy because I kept thinking, someone is finally telling it like it is. Someone is finally talking about the difficulties in human existence. And I hadn't ever come across any reading um, in my life before that did that in a way that made sense to me. So I didn't, you know, I didn't see dealing with this issue of suffering as a problem or depressing. I, also, I, I rather saw it as the truth released. And I immediately felt the liberating effect of facing this truth. Once we're willing to investigate, we can see this problem of suffering and we can set about figuring out what to do about it. There's a quote here from a book called Elements of Buddhism by John Snelling. He says, The person that desires to have only pleasure and refuses pain expends an enormous amount of energy resisting life and at the same time misses out enormously. He or she is on a self-defeating mission in any case. For just as we evade certain forms of suffering, we inevitably fall victims to others. Underlying our glitzy, modern consumer culture, there is a deep spiritual un undernourishment and malaise that manifests in all kinds of symptoms. Nervous disorders, loneliness, alienation, purposelessness. So blanking out or running away or burying our heads in the sand or a videotape will take us nowhere in the long run. If we really want to solve our problems, and the world's problems where they stem from the same roots, we must open up and accept the reality of suffering with full awareness as it strikes us here and now. Then strange as it may seem, we reap vast rewards, for suffering has its positive side, 
From it we derive the experience of depth, of the fullness of our humanity. This puts us fully in touch with other people and the rest of the universe. The Buddha's father knew that uh, seeing suffering inspires one to search for answers. Perhaps um, many of you know about how the Buddha began his spiritual search. Um, He was born into a ruling family in present-day India about 2,500 years ago. And a prophecy at his birth said that he would grow up to be either a famous ruler or a famous spiritual teacher. His father was interested in the former outcome. He wanted him to be a ruler, so he did what he could to make this come true. And it's said that the young prince lived in a palace where he was not allowed to see any suffering. No sick or old people were allowed around him. The legends even say that his father went to the lengths of having a team of gardeners pick all the dead flower blossoms off in the morning so that he wouldn't see decay or death. So why did his father go to such lengths to protect the Buddha from seeing suffering? It's because he knew that if the prince saw suffering, he would be moved to undertake a spiritual search in order to find out answers. You know, why? Why do we suffer? What can we do to not suffer? And this is said to be what happened, that the, the prince, when he got older, he said he wanted to see what was outside the palace gates, and so it's said that he snuck out on uh, four different occasions, and that during his adventures he saw a sick person, an old person, a dead person, and a renunciant, a monk. So the first three, the sick person, dead person, and the old person, prompted him to begin asking questions about suffering. And the last person, the monk, prompted him to eventually leave home and his wife and his child to commence the spiritual path that led to his enlightenment. So these four people were called the four heavenly messengers because they woke the Buddha up, the Buddha to be. They woke him up and inspired him to go on his search for liberation. Sometimes I think the United States is a little bit like that prince's palace. <laughs> we live in, a, in an age and place where many of us are more protected from basic suffering than at any time in human history. And we're offered toys and gadgets like the prince was perhaps offered dancing women and music, (laughs) were offered toys and gadgets to distract us from the truth of suffering and to entice us to believe that happiness lies in uh, accumulating pleasant experiences. But I think most of us here aren't convinced. We wouldn't have come here if we were. So we've been inspired also to um, look below this... uh, cultural formula and undertake a spiritual search and start to ask basic questions about suffering and the end of suffering. One of the first questions that comes to mind perhaps when we think about suffering is, well, what causes it? Why do we suffer? And the Buddha talked about this extensively. Conventional wisdom has it, has it that we suffer because we don't get what we want, or we get what we don't want, or we have to experience something we don't want. So it's conventionally believed that if we can just accumulate more of what we want and keep away what we don't want, that then we'll be happy. So it's kind of like string together enough pleasant moments and avoid enough unpleasant ones, and then life will be good. And most people believe this. Most of us believe this. The Buddha, however, didn't believe this. He wanted to uh, find a deeper cause uh, of happiness, or understanding happiness and suffering. And he undertook his whole spiritual search to understand this question of suffering and, and what leads to the end of suffering. And what he found out was this. The root cause of suffering is our wanting things to be different than they are. The root cause of suffering is our reactive minds our reactivity to what is. 
you've heard us talk a number of times about wanting, grasping, attachment. These words apply, imply a state of mind that is restless, a certain restlessness and a state of mind that isn't at peace. And the Buddha said this is the root of the problem, this is why we suffer. Getting lost in this mind that wants is what tortures us and doesn't give us rest. Because even if we satisfy one desire, soon another one arises. Now, even if we've been looking forward to lunch and lunch is good, it's over. And then we start thinking about tea time. <laughs> you know, this is how the mind works if, if we're looking for our happiness and um, pleasant experiences. And it's a, it's a, it's a, restless, it's a restless mind. It's a busy mind, this mind that, that wants to figure out how to only experience pleasure and not to experience unpleasantness. And it's very deeply ingrained. It's, um, and, you know, it's pretty constant. We don't see it until we actually sit and look. You know, when we meditate, that's what we're doing. We're sitting and looking, and we start to see the extent of grasping in our minds. We start to see how often we are dissatisfied with our experience how often we do want it to be different. And we start to understand that that is suffering, this wanting things to be different. The other aspect of wanting, which may seem like it's opposite, but it's actually only the other side of the coin, is aversion. If we aren't busy wanting, we're often busy not wanting. <laughs> Most of us kind of specialize in one or the other. <laughs> Um, that we all, we both, obviously, we all experience both sides of the coin. I'm an aversion expert myself. So with wanting, when we see something that, that we like, we desire it. And with aversion, when we see something that we don't like, we push it away. But they both come from um, not accepting what, what is, from wanting our experience to be different than it is. And we can see this very clearly in our meditation experience. We can see how we suffer from desire and aversion. We see that when something pleasant happens like a nice fantasy or one of those sittings where the body feels really great, we don't want it to end. We hold on. And we see that when something unpleasant happens like a pain in the body or a difficult emotion, we don't want to experience it. We want it to go away. And this is our deeply conditioned um, reactivity. Pleasure, hold on. Unpleasant, go away. So this is a state of not being at peace. This is a restless state. But by observing this conditioning, we begin to learn in a deep manner what causes suffering and, and how to find peace, what brings us peace. And we start to understand that suffering doesn't consist in what happens to us, but rather in our reaction to what happens to us. So the first noble truth is the truth of suffering, and the second noble truth is um, the cause of suffering, which is um, our, in a, our not accepting what is, our grasping and pushing away. So that's kind of maybe the, um, the part that seems like bad news. <laughs> but now there's good news. <laughs> the good news is that the Buddha also speaks about the end of suffering, and that's the third noble truth. And he tells us that we can learn not to be victims to suffering, that there is a way to release. And meditation is about this. It's about learning how to free ourselves from our entanglement and from our suffering. There's a couple different levels of this freedom that I'd like to explore. In the first level, we can taste instances of internal peace by cultivating equanimity in our meditation. So equanimity is that state of balance, of not reacting and getting lost in desire or aversion. As we cultivate equanimity, we learn not to be pushed around by our desires and our aversions. We learn to stay balanced in the midst of all the changing circumstances of life. 
Each time in our meditation that we let go of pleasant thoughts, we're cultivating equanimity. Or each time we can stay with an unpleasant bodily sensation, a pain in the knee or the back, we're practicing and learning this equanimity. We're learning how to be with what is, to let it be. So each time we sit in meditation, we open ourselves to our experience and, and look at our reactions and not get lost in them. We're offering ourselves um, internal peace, a peace that's not dependent on this changing world. So in this way, we can taste freedom from suffering and in in this equanimity that we cultivate in our in our meditation. Mindfulness is what gives us hope here. We're going to react to pleasant and unpleasant. You know, we're deeply conditioned that way, and we're not going to change it in one day. But mindfulness gives us a chance to be aware of this and not get lost in it. So we notice pleasant, oh, I'm holding on. Unpleasant, oh, I'm trying to make it go away. And as we become mindful of these reactions, we don't get lost in them, and then we don't suffer. So it's not about trying, uh, sometimes we think when we talk about equanimity that, oh, so we have to, I have to get rid of my grasping and I have to get rid of my aversion. But if we look at it that way, it's just more aversion. <laughs> it's aversion to grasping and aversion to aversion. And we're just getting more tangled. Um, the key is mindfulness, just being aware when grasping and aversion come up. And when we apply that mindfulness, then we don't get lost, and then we taste freedom. Let's continue a bit with the analogy of the river. When we're unwilling to accept change, we struggle against the flow, so we try to paddle upstream um, or in many different ways, and, and uh, it gets pretty hard, and we feel whipped around by the current, and we feel out of control in our lives. But as we develop more equanimity, it's easier to sit in our boat and just go with the flow, enjoying the scenery no matter what it is. So we enjoy the lovely pastoral scenes, and we enjoy the dry (coughs) deserts and the steamy jungles. We flow with the current, so we don't need to struggle. If we get dunked, we know how to come back up, get in the boat, and flow again. We're more at peace with the way life is. When I was thinking about this talk, I remembered when um, a movie that I saw when I was a child, my father used to rent uh, movies from the uh, public library. This was before we had videos. And uh, when I was about seven or eight, I think it was, he used to show us this Buster Keaton movie. And I don't know if any of you remember Buster Keaton. But it was the silent movie times, and um, and uh, he was a kind of a a comic, but with a very um, straight appearance. <laughs> and uh, this movie was uh, it was totally in silence, and so there's this kind of nice music in the background. And he, he starts out in um, London, and he's reading a newspaper, and it says Discover Canada. So he jumps in the river and swims across the ocean, <laughs> and he comes out in Canada. And, he's, and he comes to this train track, and there's this little car on it. You know those cars that go along the train track, you know, like that? And he gets on this car, and he crosses Canada on this car. And um, this is my memory of the movie. It might actually be somewhat different. <laughs> this is what I remember. And he was sat on this car, and he just went through everything, and he just stayed totally cool about it all. So he'd go through the industrial cities, and he'd go through herds of bison, and he'd go through the mountains, and he'd go, and it would snow, and it would rain. And, you know, if it snowed, he had this little box on his car. If it snowed, he took out a coat and put it on, you know. (laughs) And then, you know, he put it back in the box. This box had a lot of stuff in it, even though it was only about this big. And if it rained, he'd take out the umbrella and put it up. And he just stayed cool, and the whole time there's this music in the back, do, 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 kind of music. <laughs> and it reminded me of this um, quality of equanimity, <laughs> that, that he just took everything that came, and he, and, he, and he was interested in it all, and he was cool with it all. And he took care of himself, you know, when he needed a coat, he took out a coat. When he needed an umbrella, he took an umbrella. But he, he just stayed um, 
steady through it all. I don't remember the ending. <laughs> anyway, as a, as a child, I really liked that movie. Um, we watched it many times. Uh, I think I was attracted. We're all attracted to that quality of equanimity. You know, we all know that there's peace and that there's happiness there. So the link between understanding change and making peace with change and thereby developing equanimity is reflected in the Buddha's last words. He said to the gathering around him, he said, All conditioned things arise and pass away. Work out your liberation with diligence. So his last teaching pointed to understanding change as the path to liberation, understanding how to work with change. So we've been talking about freedom from suffering and this relative reality. The Buddha also refers to the end of suffering and the experience of nibbana, of enlightenment. The word enlightenment has a lot of mystique here in the West, and sometimes it even seems there's a hesitation to talk about it. But in the East, enlightenment is considered the obvious goal of meditation. One problem, however, in speaking about enlightenment is that it can't really be described. Nibbana, or enlightenment, is of such a different reality that words of this conditioned reality can't possibly catch its essence. However, there have been attempts to describe Nibbana. In one chapter of the Pali Canon, which is the Buddhist scriptures, there's 33 synonyms for enlightenment that are offered. Some of them are the taintless, the true, the beyond, the ageless, the deathless, the exhaustion of craving, security, release, non-attachment, Shelter, the ultimate, doesn't sound too bad. Nibbana is the ultimate release from suffering, the laying down of our burden, which the Buddha talked about and which we as humans can experience. By developing our minds through meditation, humans can taste this Nibbana, and it helps purify the mind and direct it towards greater and greater levels of peace. Another problem with talking about enlightenment is that then um, us Western yogis think that we have to meditate in order to make certain experiences happen. And then we also sometimes have this assumption that if we have certain meditation experiences, we're going to be spared future problems with life. It's going to solve things, everything. Um, But what we know about meditative experiences is that they're not a magic solution. If any of you here have read Jack Cornfield's latest book, um, After the Ecstasy, Then the Laundry, <laughs> it points out until, that until we're fully enlightened, we still have to do the work of learning in our lives, moment by moment. We still have to uh, figure out how to deal equanimously with the joys and sorrows and the pleasures and pains of life. We still have to do the laundry. We also know that if we meditate to try to make certain experiences happen, that's grasping. So there we are, again, lost in grasping. So I've talked about the first three uh, noble truths, the truth of suffering, the, end of, uh, the cause of suffering, and the end of suffering. The fourth noble truth describes the path of purification that ends leads to the end of suffering. This path is called the Noble Eightfold Path because it has eight parts. And the parts of this path are eight aspects of our lives that need to be purified in order to lead to the, us to the end of suffering. 
And so we talk about these eight points one after another, but actually they're very interdependent and they're all developed at the same time. The Buddha described them as eight strands of one rope, that they're entwined and work together. So there's three parts. You might have noticed that the Buddha's teachings has a lot of numbers, and (laughs) it's very well organized. (laughs) So there's three parts to this noble eightfold path. Moral purification, purification of the mind, and purification of wisdom. So let's just take a few moments to look at each one of these three parts. I'd like to start with the part that deals with moral purification or purification of conduct. In Buddhist thought, moral purification is considered the foundation of spiritual practice. It's believed that one cannot advance far on the spiritual path if one is leading an immoral life, if we're going around causing harm to ourselves or to others. So this part of the path is a prescription for morality or for integrity. The word morality sometimes has kind of pretty heavy connotations, so we can say, you know, for integrity, for living with integrity, and for putting ourselves in harmony with our surroundings in order to create a mind that is free of discord and suitable for the growth of spiritual insight. So living an ethical life, you know, this moral purification, is based on the principle of non-harming of ourselves and of others. So we wish to live in a manner that doesn't cause suffering to ourselves, nor causes suffering for others. And this this principle of non-harming flows naturally from our understanding of suffering and our natural response to suffering, which is compassion and care. We see clearly that we don't want to suffer, and therefore we don't want to cause suffering to others. So this living a, a life of non-harming is actually a gift that we give to others. We're offering them this gift of fearlessness. They know that they don't have to be afraid around us because we don't wish to cause harm. But we also undertake to live an ethical life as a gift to ourselves. As we learn to control our impulses that lead to suffering for ourselves and others, we give ourselves a gift of happiness. We see this very quickly in meditation, that unethical acts, things that... um, aren't so cool that we've done, that they weigh and cloud the mind, they disturb the mind. If we're engaged in actions that cause pain and conflict, when we sit down, that's what comes up. That's what comes up to visit us and make the mind turbulent. And so it's not very easy to develop concentration and insight in that case. Almost anybody who spends much time meditating goes through periods where we kind of remember all the things we've done that weren't so, so ethical. It's a kind of purification as we see these, these things and we feel remorse and we find ourselves committed to not causing further suffering. And as we t- meditate more, we get actually more and more sensitive to breaches in ethical conduct. And so we, we refine our, our um, commitment to non-harming and our, and our understanding of non-harming. Now, before I sound too um, depressing, when we do acts that are filled with kindness or um, caring for others or generosity, those too affect our minds and, and they uplift them and make them light. And when we meditate after, um, when we've uh, been engaged in, in skillful action in the world, um, our minds are ripe for concentration and for mindfulness. It's actually said that, uh, that the proximate cause of concentration is happiness, so a happy mind gets concentrated more. And when we do um, beneficial things in this world, we are happier. makes our mind lighter, so it helps our meditation. So in this way, living an ethical life is a gift to ourselves. In, in, in Asia, um, the teachings traditionally uh, start with generosity and then with um, living a moral life and then go on to meditation. 
here in the West, um, we often start with meditation and go backwards. <laughs> you know, then we start to understand the importance of living uh, a life of integrity. I remember uh, a couple of years ago, me and a couple of other teachers went to visit this Burmese meditation master who lives in um, Lowell, around the Lowell area of Massachusetts. And we wanted to ask him what he thought about us teaching Vipassana and these 10-day courses here in the United States. And um, just to see what he thought about, you know, how we were transmitting the Dharma. So we told him what we were doing, that, you know, people come and they, you know, sit and do these meditation retreats and everything. And he kind of looks at us and he shakes his head a little bit and he goes, better to start with morality. <laughs> and, and I think what he was really pointing to was that, you know, what I was saying about how if we live a life of um, moral integrity, meditation is easier. Now, that doesn't mean you should all go home. <laughs> but but it, it does just point to how, these, um, how interconnected these are. The, the moral, living a moral life and our meditation practice. One metaphor that the Buddha used to describe the importance of training in morality, he said that trying to practice meditation without a foundation of non-harming is like trying to cross a river without first untying the boat. No matter how strenuously we row, we're not going to get anywhere. <laughs> So a commitment to a foundation of non-harming is very beneficial to our meditation practice, to our happiness and to the happiness of those around us. This first um, part of the Eightfold Path, this moral purification, has three parts, skillful action, skillful speech, and skillful livelihood. So the skillful action is three of the um, five precepts that Michelle mentioned the first night that we undertake a commitment to not harm, to not kill. Um, We undertake a commitment to not stealing or taking that which is not given to us, and to not engaging in sexual misconduct. We can see clearly how these three areas are areas where it's easy to cause harm, it's easy to cause suffering. And so the Buddha is just saying, you know, look here, (laughs) be careful here, be careful around um, using things and taking things. Be careful around your sexual energy. Um, you know, be careful around harming life. It's interesting that the third precept, uh, the fourth precept, the precept against unwholesome speech, actually got its own whole step of the Eightfold Path. <laughs> the Buddha thought, you know, understood that speech is an area that it's so easy to cause suffering that he um, really highlighted it and gave it its own its own step. And we don't have to think long to really, yeah, understand that speech is a very, very easy way to cause um, suffering. So he's saying, you know, pay attention here. Pay attention to speech as a place to bring mindfulness and care so that we don't, don't spread suffering in this world and we live more harmoniously. He gave a few um, guidelines for speech speaking the truth, speaking what's useful, not um, engaging in gossip and idle speech, abstaining from cruel speech or speech that causes division. So he, he goes quite into depth about you know, how we can take care with our speech in order not to cause harm. The third step of this moral purification part of the path is a right livelihood. And basically this is about um, not engaging in a field of work that causes harm to ourselves or others. Very specifically, the Buddha said that we shouldn't deal in arms, slavery, meat, intoxicants, and poisons. You can see pretty obviously how those... um, fields would cause harm and suffering. So also it recommended we didn't engage in any livelihood that causes us to transgress the the precepts. And if we can find a job that helps us to cultivate positive qualities such as compassion and patience and generosity, service to others, then that's very good work to do. 
So that's uh, the, the part of the path of moral purification, uh, skillful action, skillful speech, and skillful livelihood. Three other steps of the Eightfold Path have to do with purification of the mind. So the three steps here are uh, skillful concentration, skillful mindfulness, and skillful energy. We've talked quite a bit about concentration and mindfulness, so I'm not going to um, go into that more. And uh, Steve, uh, a few nights ago, talked about energy, you know, cultivating that energy to um, engage with our experience. So these three, concentration, mindfulness, and uh, energy, all come under the um, part of the path about uh, mental purification or um, development of our minds. The last uh, part, if, I'm, if you're going in my order, but like I said, there's different orders that you can, um, they're all intertwined in different orders, you can look at them. The last part of the, the Eightfold Path is purification of wisdom. And there's two parts here. There's skillful understanding and skillful thought. Skillful understanding is um, it's both the beginning and the end of the path. <laughs> It's about understanding the nature of reality, so it's about understanding change and understanding dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and understanding um, anatta or no-self that Michelle talked about some last night. It's about understanding karma law and uh, cause and effect that um, that our actions have consequences. You can see how this goes back to the part um, with moral purification. You could, they all work together in, a, in an amazing uh, system. I think the, the, the point I want to make about skillful understanding is that we're really talking about understanding um, based in experience. So it's one thing to understand the Buddhist teachings um, up here, but it's another thing to do what we're doing here, which is sitting down and looking at our own experience in order to really absorb and know deeply these truths. And that's what liberates us. That's what leads to freedom. The last um, aspect of the Eightfold Path is called a skillful thought. As we develop our minds in wisdom, we find that we incline our minds more and more to skillful thought. And the Buddha talked about three particularly skillful types of thought. Thoughts of letting go, uh, thoughts of loving kindness, and thoughts of compassion. So the first, the letting go, that's a direct antidote to clinging. So it's the opposite of attachment. So as we learn to incline the mind towards letting go, not to grasp, not to hold on, we, we incline the mind towards freedom. Loving kindness is this antidote for ill will. So as we incline the mind towards wishing well for ourselves and others, we develop an open-heartedness and receptivity that leads to happiness. And the skillful thought of compassion, this is the antidote to cruelty. Compassion is what helps us to learn to look at suffering with care, and we learn to be receptive and gentle in the face of pain. And in a world that includes a fair amount of suffering, this compassion helps us to stay open and connected to life and leads to happiness. So the Noble Eightfold Path with its eight steps skillful action, skillful speech, skillful livelihood, skillful concentration, skillful mindfulness, skillful effort, skillful understanding, and skillful thought. So the Buddha said if we develop all of these qualities, that will lead us to freedom. But it's also, it isn't necessary for you to believe any of this, to, to, to practice Vipassana. The Buddha also said, don't believe everything I say, see for yourself. So 
So that's our invitation here is to meditate and see for yourself. So after all this talk about suffering, I'd like to end with a poem called Happiness. So much happiness, it's called. It's by my current favorite author again. The other retreat, I read a poem by her, um, Naomi Shahib Nye. So much happiness. It is difficult to know what to do with so much happiness. With sadness, there is something to rub against, a wound to tend with lotion and cloth. When the world falls in around you, you have pieces to pick up, something to hold in your hands, like ticket stubs or change. But happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. Happiness lands on the roof of the next house, singing, and disappears when it wants to. You are happy either way. Even the fact that you once lived in a beautiful treehouse and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy. Everything has a life of its own. It too could wake up filled with possibilities of coffee cake and ripe peaches and love even the floor which needs to be swept, the soiled linens and scratched records. Since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug, you raise your hands, and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible. You take no credit, as the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it, and in that way be known. Let's sit for a couple minutes. Wishing you so much happiness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.